Why can some people just wake up one day and decide to change their life? Why can people wake up one day and just quit smoking or quit drinking or stop eating sweets or processed food? Why do some people struggle with forming habits that actually make them happy? They know they make them happier, but they still struggle doing them. Why do so many of us know what to do, but we just aren't making the changes in our lives? We know what to do, but we just aren't doing it. How do we actually change? These questions drive me a little bit crazy, and I am obsessed with trying to understand this. And I think everyone listening asks themselves a variation of these questions in some capacity, maybe even every day. Well, these questions led me on a quest, and that quest led me to Gretchen Rubin. Now, I knew Gretchen already from her previous books. She's actually written seven, but I read The Happiness Project years ago, and I thought it was amazing. So when she came out with Better Than Before, her newest book, I picked it up without even thinking about the show. Frankly, I just picked it up for me. So I read Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives, and I became a woman obsessed. I chased Gretchen down and I said, oh, I I know you're on every television channel in the world and I know you're at the top of iTunes with your own podcast right now and I know that you're in extreme demand, but could you maybe come talk to us because I believe you can change everybody's lives who listens to this show and guess what? Gretchen didn't hesitate. She said yes immediately. The show today is about how we actually change. And I hope that it is of as much value to you as my conversation with Gretchen was to me. Here we go. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts. We're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today I am talking with the author of several books, including The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and now Better Than Before. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to Ella. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Well, the reason I chased you down was because of a book that I am finding really, really impactful in my own life. And that book is called Better Than Before. (laughs) Yeah, my most recent book. That's so nice to hear that you're finding it helpful. I told you before we started recording, I said, I don't want to fawn on the air because it's so annoying for listeners who haven't yet read the book to hear me just gush and gush and say, this is fabulous. But let me tell you something. I interview a great many people who happen to have written a book. So they are authors and it's one of the things that they do. And every once in a while in my own life, I come across a book and I say, I've got to track this person down. And today that person is you, Gretchen. (laughs) I'm great. Excellent to be talking to you. Listen, tell me something. What on earth led you to write a book about mastering habits? Well, I, as you said, I'd been writing and researching and talking to people about happiness for years. And I began to notice a pattern that which was when people were talking about a big happiness boost that they had, or more often a big happiness challenge that they were facing, very often it had to do with a problem related to a habit. So somebody said, well, my problem is just that I'm exhausted all the time. Well, that really is about the habit of getting enough sleep. And so I became increasingly drawn 
to the idea of habits and how what role habits had to play in creating a happier, healthier, more productive life. Well, and you tell us a story and you say, I was sitting with my friend in a coffee shop and tell us that story. Uh, So I was sitting with a friend and I'm kind of a happiness bore. I'm constantly talking to people about their happiness or now their habits. And so I was talking to her about her happiness and her habits. And she said, Well, you know, the thing is, I know I would be happier if I exercised. And what's weird is that in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And I thought, well, why not? I mean, at one time she exercised regularly and it was effortless and she never missed. Now she can't do it. What changed? What's going on? And that got me obsessed with this question of habits and how and when is it that people are able to change their habits? Well, what is what is the definition of a habit? What, what makes it different than just an activity? I've really come to believe that the key aspect that makes something a habit is decision-making or rather the lack of decision-making. And something is a habit when it's on autopilot. And that's why habits can be freeing and energizing because we don't have to use our decision-making power. We don't have to use our self-control. And that's draining and um, difficult to make decisions and to use self-control. But with a habit, you don't decide. So I don't decide to skip dessert. I don't decide to get up at 6 a.m. I don't decide whether to go to my strength training class. I just go. And because there's no decision and no self-control, that uh, behavior happens very easily. And, um, and I think that's the key thing, is that there is no decision-making. Okay, so one example that you use in the book is you say, it's not, I don't make a decision to buckle up when I get in a yes. car. Like you right. just buckle up. <laughs> yes. And if every time you were kind of going through, well, life's too short to wear a seatbelt every time. And I don't know, I wore my seatbelt yesterday. Why should I have to wear it today? Oh, you know, maybe somebody else in the car is going to feel uncomfortable if I wear my seatbelt and I don't. I mean, you could wear yourself bad just deciding whether to wear your seatbelt, but we don't. We just, we just do it. I know that we actually, there is a real thing called decision fatigue. And frankly, yes. just analyzing everything and making decisions about everything can just be exhausting, just on yes. an anecdotal level, right? Yes. So when you talk about taking an activity that we know we want or need in our lives, and I'm using the word activity very, very broadly, what your book is helping me do personally is reframe some of those activities into habits so that I am no longer doing any analysis or loophole, uh-huh. loophole seeking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, <laughs> My yeah, favorite yeah. thing in the world, if there's a loophole, I'm going to find it. Yeah. <laughs> and you help us turn those into habits. And I love what you just said. You, I think you said that some of the things you do that are habit are you don't eat sweets, you go to the gym and you get up at 6.30. And you said, and they don't require willpower. That's fascinating. Most people would be surprised to hear that those things don't require willpower. How is that possible? Because it is because when they become a habit, when it just happens on autopilot, then you don't have that debate and it, it just executes. And you now some things are unfortunately and many things that we want to make into habits are never as simple as wearing a seatbelt. Because the thing about wearing a seatbelt or brushing your teeth, they happen exactly in the same way every day. You know, you every time you get in the car you fasten that seatbelt. It's just it just becomes second nature to you. And something like going to the gym is probably never gonna be quite that simple because maybe on 
one day you take a class and one day you do something with a friend or one day you go at 10 a.m. and one day you go at 3 p.m. and then, oh, you know, you're traveling, so you have to do something different. It can't be purely automatic the way the most simple kinds of habits are. But you can get out of the question of decision. And it's not so you're not debating whether to do something, but just when, when are you going to do something? How are you going to do something? And so, you know, in the book, I identify 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. So when you're trying to lock in that habit, you can use as many of those strategies as you need to or want to, to help make that habit as firmly stuck in concrete as you can. Okay. So that's the premise here is we're trying to maybe break a habit and sort of figure out how to do that. Or we're trying to form new habits. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to know ourselves to choose strategies that work. I think I'm quoting you. Yes, absolutely. You know, we've all had habits that we struggled with and not succeeded. And, you know, it's easy to get discouraged when you think something's really important to you, you can see the value of it. And yet over and over, you, you just sort of can't get it to stick. When that happens, often it's because we've gone about trying to form a habit in a way that is not right for us. Because, you know, you say, oh, this is what Steve does. Or I just read this great article about why this makes so much sense. But the fact is, if you don't set it up in a way that's right for you, it's not going to work. And just the most obvious example is morning people and night people. I had a friend who I've known for years. He's a night person. He can barely get out of bed in time to get to work. He's at his most productive and creative late in the day. He's exactly the opposite of from me. I'm a true morning person. He looked me in the eye and said, for my New Year's resolution, I'm going to get up early every day and go for a run. And I just said, Have you met yourself? Because you are not setting yourself up for success. I get all the reasons on paper why this makes sense. It would make sense for me, but it doesn't make sense for you because you're a night person. That is not going to work for you. And I think a lot of times when people are trying a habit, they keep trying something because somebody says this is the way to succeed. But there are no magic one-size-fits-all solutions, you know. And when you look at people who have successful habits, well, they do – a whole bunch of different things. Some people work a half an hour a day. Some people work 14 hours a day. Sometimes people work in silence. Sometimes people work in bustle and noise and crowds. And, you know, some people do better when they indulge a little bit. Sometimes some people do better when they give something up altogether. You really have to think about what kind of person you are so that you can set yourself up for success. Because I think we just so often think, well, this is this should work. This, this sounds right. But if it doesn't work for us, then we're not setting ourselves up right. I mean, you just described the entire fitness industry, the entire Uh, nutrition and food industry, and the entire personal development industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's because something works so well for you that then you you don't understand like, well, just because this is what works for me, it might not work for somebody else. And that's one thing I have to say, I really learned from writing this book. There were all these things where I was like, well, this is the right way because clearly it works for me. So this is the right way. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I was like, you know what, this works for me. It doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. If everything worked, then there would be one way to do exercise. There would be one way to do food. There'd be one way to do learning. Yes. I mean, right? (laughs) Obviously. I mean, this is the thing that I have to say when I was getting into the research was just like, it was like the emperor's new clothes. Because I was like, I'm sorry, am I the only one who's noticed that some people are much better at forming habits than other people? They have a much greater aptitude for it. And am I the only ones who noticed that some people love habits and then some people really are philosophically opposed to habits. So that's obviously going to affect 
the way in which they form habits. And am I the only one who's noticed that like this one strategy doesn't work for every? Because like you say, if that worked for everybody, we would all be fixed. I mean, it's like if 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 there was a magic answer, it would have caught on more. We would um, know by now. I swear, we'd know by we would now. know by yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> the, but the problem is, there's no, um, there's not one magic answer. But though I do think there are a lot of patterns that once you see a pattern, then you're like, oh, I totally get it. Like, oh, this is my, you know, there's a lot of people like me. I'll tr- I'll try it this way. I've always been trying it this other way that hasn't been working. But now that you mentioned it, I'll try it this other way. Well, that was one of the big insights here. You say it's crucial to know how we respond to expectations. Yes. I thought, what does that even mean, Gretchen? <sighs> yes. So this is, they say there are two kinds of people, the kind of people that like to divide the world into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't. <laughs> and I definitely am the kind who does. And so in this framework, which I call the four tendencies framework, I divide all of humanity into four categories and it has a lot it can really shine a very big spotlight on how you can change your habits like what's going to work for you and it has to do with how like you say how you meet an expectation whether that's an outer expectation like a work deadline or an inner expectation like your own new year's resolution and so there's four types upholders questioners, obligers, and rebels. So the first category, upholders, readily meet outer and inner expectations alike. So they meet a work deadline, they keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. And their expectations for themselves are just as important as the expectations of others. Next are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something only if they believe that it makes sense. So they hate anything arbitrary or irrational or unfair or inefficient. They really want to be convinced about the reasons for what they're doing. But once they decide that they buy into a certain expectation, they have no, they'll keep it absolutely. So they make everything an inner expectation. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And that explains the mystery of my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up to run. But when it was only her own inner expectation that she would run, she couldn't do it. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do, when they want to do it. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Um, now, most people can kind of diagnose themselves just from that quick description, but there is a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com, for people who want to take a quiz to like see you know, what what's their tendency. But this has a lot of implication for habits because let's say you're a healthcare professional and you're trying to tell somebody to take blood pressure medication, or you're a nutritionist and you're trying to encourage somebody to give up sugar, or you're a, um, a parent who's trying to get your kid to practice the violin. How you talk about it it, how you frame it is going to make a very big difference on how that person hears that message, depending on what their tendency is. As I'm reading about upholders and obligers and questioners and rebels, I, I, it was screaming at me, you're an upholder. And I, oh, went, yeah. I went and took the quiz and I am off the charts upholder. And so are you. Is that true, yes. Gretchen? <laughs> yes. And I'll tell you the funny thing is that a lot of people who do what you and I do are upholders because we love habits. We see the benefit of them. We we gravitate to them. So when you look at a lot of people who write about time management, efficiency, um, health, things like that, and the upholder, it turns out, and maybe this will come as a surprise to you, it's a very small category of people. Very few people are upholders. It's kind huh. of an extreme category. And when I was writing my book, I really kind of had to rewrite a lot of it once I understood most people are not like me or you. 
most people overwhelmingly are questioners or obligers. Even fewer people are rebels, but rebels and, and upholders are the two extreme personalities, and they're very small. Most people are questioners or obligers. Okay, so the questioner is the group that they question expectations and they yes. respond if they decide that it yes. makes sense. Yes. Okay, okay. And that's, what, that's like what my husband is. It's like once he decides uh, this is what you should do, he will have no problem, problem sticking to it. But if he's not decided, he won't do it. He just, just won't do it. He wants to know why should I do that? Not that anybody wants to do anything that's nonsensical, but for questioners, that's the key thing is that they feel convinced that this is the way to do it. Okay. And then the obligers I find fascinating and everybody knows an obliger or, yes. or is one. And that yes. is that they will meet outer expectations, but they struggle more with their inner expectations. Yes, absolutely. That's the largest tendency. And it's funny because obligers are the, are the tendency that are most likely to say they wish they were not in that tendency, but it's also the easiest tendency to offset the limitations because it turns out if you're an obliger or you're dealing with an obliger, either on a team or as a boss or as a parent or, you know, whatever, as a spouse, to meet inner expectations, what they need is external accountability. You plug in the external accountability and obligers can do anything. Like my friend on the track team, if she has a team, if she has a coach, if she has an accountability partner, if she's taking a class where the teacher's going to notice if she doesn't show up or she's going to let down a friend who's expecting her or she's thinking about her role model to her children, there's all different kinds of ways you can plug in external accountability. And I've been fascinated by the ingenious, imaginative ways that obligers give themselves external accountability in order to meet their inner expectations. I mean, really brilliant stuff. But that, And that's what they need because if it's just an inner expectation – they struggle. And a lot of times they don't understand the pattern because they'll think like, well, why is it that I have no trouble meeting my deadlines at work, but I can't meet my deadlines for myself? And maybe they think it's low self-esteem or it's a lack of priorities or lack of self-control. No, it's external accountability. You just plug that in and obligers can do it. So obligers do things more readily for other people than they do for themselves. Well, see, that's very interesting because obligers often imagine that if they could somehow get rid of external, the external demands on them, then they would finally turn inward and meet their own inner <laughs> expectations. So, for instance, somebody will say, somebody wrote to me on my blog and said, um, you know, I had this very demanding job, but I really, I wanted to start a blog. I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to read in my house. And so I decided I would go part, I, I would quit my job and like give myself this sabbatical year and I've done nothing except work on the house because my husband held me accountable for that. We were working on that together. It's not a matter of like doing for others. And so what's done for yourself can't get done because even, or, or somebody else said to me, well, you know, I, I thought I wasn't exercising because my kids took up all my time, but my last one went to college, you know, six, six months ago. And I haven't, I still haven't exercised one time. You know, it's like, oh, even when that, even when those external obligations are gone, there's still the inner expectations don't get met unless there's some form of external accountability. On the other hand, if you plug in that external accountability, even in the middle of everyday life, they can do it. Like a person who said to me, well, I love to read, but I never make time to read. So I joined a book group where you're really expected to read the book. Now I read. Or somebody was telling me that he wanted to figure out how to get up, get up on time. And so what he does now, and this is like a long kind of involved way to do it, but so his wife gets home from work before he does. He perks behind her in the driveway, but she leaves for before he does. So he has to get up in order to move her car, his car, so that she can pull out because he needs, he needs somebody to be like, hey, dude, you got to move your car. So now he has that external accountability for something like getting up on time. 
it's really that that sense of accountability. Fantastic. So like a really base example is if somebody's struggling getting to the gym or playing yes. tennis. Well, not that you can play tennis by yourself, but arranging a date where you yes. would be letting someone down yes. if you did not meet them is 100%. Would, okay. Okay. Yes. So, so, and there's all different forms that could take. So you might meet a friend there uh, who's going to be disappointed if you don't show up. You could uh, sign up for a class. Um, you could, um, I heard of a great story where these two guys wanted to be gym buddies. And so what they did is at the end of every workout, they would trade shoes. So if you don't come tomorrow, I can't work out because you've got my shoe, you know? And so, yeah, but once you realize that it's that accountability that you need, then it's much easier to see how you would plug it in. Okay, so let's talk about this little outlier group called the Upholders, where we love our to-do list yes. and we don't struggle necessarily with meeting outer expectations or inner expectations because the bar is set, whether it's internal or external, right? Yes. So, and that's one of the things, like any advice that you give is going to work on some people because upholders, anything works on an upholder because upholders basically like if they want to form a habit, it's, it's just not that hard for them. I'm not saying it's effortless for them, but it's definitely easier for them. They have a, just a much higher propensity to that and they like it. They embrace it. Yeah. And so that's, but, but there aren't that many upholders. Well, and there's a dark side and let's be clear. Yes, there's a dark side. <laughs> all of these, all of these tendencies have strengths and weaknesses and all of them include people who are hugely successful and also big losers. So it's not that one is better than the other. It's it's just like if you understand uh, your own tendency, then you can kind of figure out how to take advantage of the benefits and, and offset the limitations. I mean, for one thing, I don't know if, if you have experienced this as an upholder, but there's a lot of impatience in being an upholder because you're like, why is it that other people just aren't doing what they said? They're like, what, you've, you've been talking about this for weeks. Like, just do it already. Like, if it's important to you, do it. Like, what's the big deal? Um, we might possibly be dogmatic and bossy. Yes. Yeah, because we're just like, what's everybody, like, what's the problem here? And one of the things I realized as an upholder parent is like, not only do I want my children to do what they should do, I want them to want to do it themselves, which of course is even a higher burden. It's not even just to do it, you know, and that's like, that's a very upholder thing. Um, and also upholders, they tend to be very interested in understanding expectations. And so they can almost become paranoid sometimes or very, very uneasy when it's not clear what the rules are, what the expectations are, or what they're supposed to be doing. Now, so there's dark sides to being an upholder. Um, and all, all of, and as I say, all of them have negative or they can. And when you, somebody said to me like, well, what's, which tendency is the best tendency, like who's the happiest, who's the most successful. And all of the tendencies, it's really a matter of understanding yourself and figuring out how to counterbalance the negatives and take advantage so that if you know that as an upholder, you're maybe going to be too concerned with following the rules. Like, well, how do you counterbalance that? When the way I counterbalance it, I'm married to a questioner and I've really learned from him to stop. My impulse is to do what's expected of me, but my impulse, now I say, wait a minute, do I want to do this? Is this the right decision for me? And to learn to question more, not to just have that automatic uh, upholderness. Well, and something that you're very clear about that I certainly know is true as an upholder is that it doesn't matter which of the four groups that you're in, which of the four tendencies is more likely to describe you. Forming the right habits and forming the habits are hard. We struggle. Yeah, no, it's, it's if you know kind of the right pressure to apply or how to set it up, um, it really helps. For instance, like one thing is a lot of uh, questioners, let's say they want to change their eating habits. 
one thing that works really well with a questioner is like to do a ton of research. And I've talked to several questioners where they're like, I had a spreadsheet on Excel and I uh, interviewed eight <laughs> nutritionists and I investigated their philosophies and I rated them on one to 10 scale. And, you know, I interviewed them and I did this and I did that. And like, and then I really decided that this was the person who I thought had like figured it out the best. And now I can do what that person says because I've sort of made up my mind that this, I, you know, I trust this person's judgment. I believe in their arguments. You know, they really have to go through that. Whereas with like an upholder, I'm like, eh, if it's good enough for you, it's probably good enough for me. I'll do that. You know what I mean? It just, it, and then I'll stick to it. And a, uh, an obliger, it might be a matter of like, oh, I'm going to be in an accountability group where they're going to talk to me about my eating habits, or I'm going to have a nutritionist who's going to check in with me once a week, or I'm going to post pictures of my food to Facebook or whatever it might be um, to get that sense of external accountability. Well, and you help us by giving even more distinctions to drill down into what our preferences are. So you help us understand that it matters if you're a morning lark or a uh, night owl, or if you uh, prefer simplicity over abundance, uh, or I, here's a great one. Are you a finisher or an <laughs> opener? Yes. Uh, yeah, because finishers really want things to be finished, to be closed off. They like that feeling of accomplishment and kind of conclusion and openers like possibility and new things. And you can imagine how this makes a big difference. Like, let's say you're trying to go to a gym. I go to a, I go to a strength training gym where you work out with a trainer and like, that's all you can do. It's like, you do that and then you're out. Like, and you can only go twice a week at the most. And so it's like, there's no, there's no flexibility. There's no options. There's no choices. Just as this very simple thing. And that so satisfies me as a finisher. But another person, an opener might really feel cramped by that and frustrated by that. And they do better at one of those big gyms where there's a million different classes and all the new machines. And if you get tired of this, you can do this other thing. So they could have the habit of going to the gym regularly, but then they'd have this feeling of, oh, I can try this. And, oh, I'm going to start this thing. And, oh, I got bored with this. Now I'll try that. You know, And this feeling of constant opening to them would be very exciting and help them stick to the habit because it fed that part of their personality. And it's so funny how these things apply in different areas of your life because insofar as my fitness regimen goes, I'm run, bike, swim, yoga, weights, you know, you name it. I'm going to do it because I am an opener in my fitness ah, world. And then in my career though, I'm not your, I'm not your visionary. I'm not your opener. I'm your finisher. I execute and I get it done. So it's interesting how contextual they are. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Or like the question of like, do you like to start small or start big? And I think for a lot of times people in, with some kinds of habits, they might want to start small, but in other kinds of habits, they might want to start big. And I think it's just like, what captures your fancy? What sounds like the kind of thing that you would follow through with? Um, because often we're told this is the way to do it. You have to start small, start small, start small, small, small steps, little accomplishments, you know, incremental, build it in gradually. It's like, yeah, but some people, sometimes people get bored with that and they're like not interested in incremental change. So again, you have to really be thinking now what's true for me um, in, given the habit that I'm trying to change. Well, and what I'm literally doing is I am taking several habits that I want to form. So some of my habits that I've taken on now are I get up earlier in the morning than the world needs me to, if you're yeah. following my logic, like it's not a set time for me yeah. actually every day. It's just always earlier than the world needs me to. So some days that's 5.08 uh -huh. <laughs> and some days it's 6.30 right. and, and, and some days it's 7 a.m. So that's that and usually on the weekend. So because the uh -huh. world does not need me at 5.08 on the weekend. Right, um, right. <laughs> so these are habits that I'm, that I'm 
that I've built and I'm really comfortable with now, but there are many habits that I'm working on. So meditation is one and I'm trying to form these habits and where I'm going with this is that I'm actually taking my habit starting with my tendency that I'm running them through which distinction works for me, like Uh, which are my preferences. And then I get to what you call the pillars of habit formation. And really they're just strategies, aren't they Gretchen? They're the application. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so what I did was I tried to figure out what are all the strategies that a person could use um, if they wanted to make or break their habit? They're this, and they're 21, which sounds like, oh my gosh, that's so many. I can't handle it. But it's good because it means that there's a lot to choose from. You can pick the ones that work for you. Um, some of them aren't always available to us. They're only available at certain times. Some work very well for some people and not at all for others. So you have to figure that out for yourself. Um, but yeah, the pillars of habits, which are the, the, the strategy of monitoring, the strategy of foundation, the strategy of scheduling, and the strategy of accountability – These are like the big ones that everybody knows about because they're super powerful. They're super available. Um, But even those don't work for everybody. Rebels do not respond well to accountability or scheduling. And so, again, you have to know, you have to begin by knowing yourself, but then thinking about these, then you can go through the 21 strategies and think like, yeah, I could use that one and I could use that one. These are the ones that appeal to me. These are the ones that apply in the circumstance. Like convenience, the strategy of convenience is probably one of the most helpful strategies. We're just wildly more likely to do something if it's convenient and the tiniest little bit of extra convenience matters and wildly less likely to do something if it's inconvenient. And we can use that to our advantage. You make it very easy to do the things you want yourself to do and make it a real pain um, in the neck to do the things that you don't want to do yourself to do. And so you can kind of be steering yourself through your day um, by what you make convenient or inconvenient. And so there are all these strategies can be deployed when you're thinking about that challenging habit and how you can really pour it into concrete. Well, when we're talking about eating right or moving your body more, I have really stupid, easy, convenient strategies. So I have a habit of hydration early in the morning and I don't even want to think about it and I don't want to make the choice. So every night when I go to bed, there's a one liter bottle of water sitting on my nightstand because when I wake up in the morning, I literally grab the water and I chug it before, you know, as I'm before I'm downstairs, it's gone. Right. And, and that's just a habit of convenience. Just those right. few little steps that it saved mean that I do it now. Well, and I was just talking to somebody who they had, he and his wife wanted to get out of the habit of using their, their cell phones at night, like right before they went to bed. And so sure. what they did, we, you know, we all have like our charger place, like where, you know, you stick your every night where whenever, when you're charging your phone, you put it in. So they moved that because it had always been in their bedroom and then they moved it out of their bedroom so that if they wanted, they were like getting ready for bed and they wanted to check their phone, they had to go out of the bedroom and go to the charging place and look for it. Whereas before it had been right on their nightstand, but just that little bit they said made a huge difference because a lot of times they would just idly check it. And then, you know, something catches your attention, half an hour goes by. But if you're like, oh, am I really going to get up and go there? You're like, eh, no, I want to go to bed. It can wait till morning. You know, so yes, those little things can end up making a big difference. Okay. Well, tell us how you've used the strategy of monitoring in your own life. Uh, well, the strategy of monitoring is like an almost uncanny strategy because what it what research shows is that if we monitor just about anything, we tend to do a better job, even if we're not consciously trying to change. So even if you're not like, oh, I'm going to make my my eating habits better, or I'm going to exercise more. If you start, if you keep a food journal, if you use a step counter, you're just automatically start doing a better job. You mean and like so a mo- Fitbit or something? Yeah, I used an up the Jawbone Upband to um, track my steps and also my sleep because I'm the sleep 
sleep zealot and I assumed that I was really good about getting enough sleep because I value it so much. But then when I was actually looking at how much I slept, I was not as good as I thought I was. And so that was really helpful for me to be like, mm, because we tend to over remember when we behave ourselves well and under remember the times when we don't behave ourselves well, which is no <laughs> surprise. Um, yeah, so I did that. And I also I have been using my fitness pal to do a food journal. I myself find it very difficult to keep a food journal. It's just, it's like, it's, it's hard to keep a food journal. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, it's, but it's very helpful to do. It's a very, very helpful thing to do. It really does make you, make you much more conscious of what you're eating and how much you're eating it and kind of like when the patterns of your day. Here's a weird thing about eating that I did not expect to find. This is like a piece of advice that you often see. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's too good to be true. I don't buy it. But it actually totally worked for me, which is to brush your teeth after dinner. This re I, I started doing this because I was to help myself get to bed on time. I was getting, I decided to get ready earlier because sometimes I would stay up too late because I was too tired to deal with going to sleep. Oh like my gosh, taking, you're like too tired to go to bed. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Taking out my contacts, brushing my teeth seemed like this insurmountable task. So I would just stay awake. Not a good solution. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start getting ready for bed earlier so that when I am ready to go to bed, I can just slip into bed. So I started brushing my teeth and it's weird because I was a big night snacker and, uh, there's just something about brushing your teeth. It's like your brain is just like, okay, well, we're shutting down that system for tonight. It really made it, I, really, to my surprise, was a very easy way to cut out night snacking, which for many people is a really, really unhealthy habit. Like what you're eating at like last thing before you go to bed, it's probably not broccoli. No, no one's wandering around at 11 p.m. looking for a salad. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that was a, that was a really helpful thing. But so the monitoring, uh, just the more you monitor... Um, the more you become aware of like when you're eating, how much you're eating, what you're eating, and uh, having a step counter, like you get credit for all that stuff. Okay, so that's an example of the monitoring strategy. And then, you know, as an upholder, you know, I love me some scheduling. Yes. <laughs> yes. And for and for just about everybody, scheduling helps because if it's on the schedule, there's just much more high likelihood that it's going to happen. Something I think we've all experienced is that something that can happen at any time often happens at no time. So if you're like, I'm going to go to the gym today. Well, what, you know, if you schedule it, you really have, are forcing yourself to think through, well, when am I going to go? And if I go, then maybe there's something else that can't happen. So how am I making that decision? Uh, maybe I'm saying, oh, I could go to the gym every day, but do I really like it forces you to be very realistic with with the limits of your day and, and, and to do one thing. Sometimes you have to give up something else. And so it allows you to do that. Um, I schedule things even like kissing my husband in the morning and at night because it's like I'm like, I, I that's on the calendar. I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I get, I now schedule my, I say free time. I don't mean my oh. fun time, but I, I actually yes. do that as well. But I, I think it's smart. Very smart. Because I want, I want to have a time for everything. Yes. So I schedule my office work time, meaning my paperwork time, like my yes. deal with that stack time. And now it's on my calendar and now it happens. And I always schedule my workouts, always, always, always. And I don't mean I'm so organized. I know what the Friday's workout is on Monday. I mean, the night before I, I fill those yeah. blocks. But that's really, because again, it gets back to this idea of decision-making. Like you've already decided when you're going to go to the gym. So in the morning or during the day, when you have to think like, oh, should I go to the gym? It's like, you, you've you already decided that. It's like, oh, oh, I see it's 930. It's time to go to the gym. Like it just happens because you've put that on the schedule. So very smart. But I will say for rebels, if rebels see something on the schedule, it often makes them not want to do it. Even if it's something that they love to do or they really want to do, they want to choose. And so they do better with something like, oh, I feel like going running today because I 
love feeling energetic and I love having the wind in my hair. I love having the chance to listen to music. So I feel like going running today. Well, they, they want to feel it every time. To an upholder like me, I'm like, that's a lot of effort to make yourself want to do something. I want to do something even if I don't want to do it. But for a rebel, it's important to feel like they're choosing. So they almost do worse if they put something on the schedule. Well, this is interesting, not only for ourselves, but to help us be better in relationships. Yes. No, it's really important to understand other people's tendencies if you want to be helpful to them. Um, Because like with a rebel, the more you urge them to do something, the less likely they are to do it because they're going to feel like they have to resist you. So you don't want to get into that pattern at all. But yeah, but if you're, well, um, I have a podcast with my sister now called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which is tons of fun. Oh, it's, it's absolutely she, fantastic. Oh, and the quality is so good. Like it's just really well produced and just really, really well done. Oh, wait, you're so nice to say so. But she was saying that with her husband, he hates having things on the schedule. And like if, on the weekend, it's like if, if he, he feels trapped and and, and doesn't like it. Um, and so it's just important to be aware of how people are, might have a different reaction because you could set things up in a way that would actually be undermining of them. I mean, my favorite story is uh, a friend of mine had a rebel father. And so they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, Mr. So-and-so, you absolutely positively have to take this medicine. You must take it. You're in a high risk group. It's critical that you, t- like, you must follow my directions to the T. So she goes out on the sidewalk and her father says, well, what do you think, honey? Should I take the medicine? And she said, oh, no, dad, I wouldn't bother. And he said, what, you want me to die? And he takes it. So he's rebelling like all different ways. But if she'd said like, oh, you absolutely have to take it. He might've been like, you can't make me. You're not the boss of me. I'm not going to do it just because you tell me to, you know? And so, and ignited that spirit of resistance. So if you're thinking about how to work with somebody else or somebody, I was talking to a trainer who had a really interesting insight about obligers. She was saying how at their gym, she's a trainer they make a big emphasis on using people's names. And that's clearly good because then you feel like somebody's really noticing that you're there. And for a lot of reasons, that's powerful. But she said she was, had always been saying, I'll be here next week. But she said, oh, now that I know about obligers, I'm going to say, I'll see you here next week to create an expectation. <laughs> right, we'll just flip the I'm, script. Flip the script. And I'm like, I'm like, that is so genius because I think that would actually make a difference for some obligers because I'm here. It's just like, I'm here if you want me, but I'm expecting you. That's a different message. Well, my favorite section of the book and also my least favorite section of the book, because I happen to be an upholder who has a problem with loopholes. Oh, oh, I love that. That's my favorite chapter. Too. My gosh. So the, funny. Our desire to avoid effort it will is just like mind blowing. <laughs> And, but there's also that desire to experience pleasure. And I think this is why sometimes we struggle with that, like that contradiction almost is why we struggle to form habits that we actually enjoy even. No, absolutely. No, I mean, and that's one of the things that really puzzled me because I could understand why it was hard to form a habit of wanting to do, of, of, to do something that you didn't really want to do, but people just as often complain about not being able to form a habit of something they love to do. So it's like, it, it's clearly not enough to enjoy something. Uh, obviously, right? Or uh, our days would look very different. Oh yeah, because people are like, I love to cook, but I never cook. 
I love to go for a bike ride. I never go for, I love to read. I never read. No, but the thing about the loopholes, and I think you're exactly right, is that we are such good advocates for ourselves. And so we'll be in a particular situation and it's like, oh my gosh, it just occurred to me. Uh, you only live once, or it just occurred to me you're on vacation, or it just occurred to me you were so good yesterday, you deserve a day off, or you're going to be so good tomorrow, you deserve a day off, or uh, you're so busy working, you don't have time to do this. I mean, there's like a million, there's 10 categories of loopholes. They are so imaginative. They are so funny. I had to leave out, as I was going through the book, I mean, I must, I think I cut out like 300 examples because I just loved collecting examples. They're such good stories. So these are basically excuses. And there yeah. are other excuses that I hope to touch on, but let's talk about loopholes for a minute because I'm obsessed. So I'm going to throw them out there and you comment on them. Moral yep. licensing loophole. What is it? Moral licensing loopholes. I've been so good. I deserve to be bad. So I've been so good on my desire, on my diet. I deserve to have this piece of cake. Oh yeah. We've I've, never done that. <laughs> I've been so good about sticking to my budget that I deserve to buy this pair of boots. Okay. Tomorrow logic. Tomorrow logic is, well, everything's going to be easier tomorrow. Research shows that people expect to be slightly happier in the future um, than they are right now, even people who are already pretty happy. But we kind of expect that tomorrow everything's going to be better. So, oh, we'll be better off waiting till tomorrow. Like, And I have, this, I have this problem. Like, in the summer, everything's going to calm down. I'll wait and do that in the summer. And then I'm like, oh, no, I'll get back in the routine in September. I'll wait for September. It's this idea of thinking that tomorrow there's going to be more energy and more free time and more ability to follow through with something than we have today. I mean, everyone is nodding their head right now, I yeah. think, because yeah. we're all like super full of energy and discipline tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, it's going to be, it's going to be so. And also one of the things talking about eating, when people say that they're going to start a diet in the future, they eat more now. So it's actually not even just a new, it's not even just postponing. You're actually worse off because people are like, oh, because I'm going to be so good tomorrow. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow. I can eat anything I want today. Well, tomorrow is always a day away. Okay. How about questionable assumption? Oh, uh, this is, this is when people are doing it, doing it like based on something and you're like, mm, I'm not sure that's true. It's like, well, I've gained a lot of weight, but you know, I've been working out. So I think all this weight is muscle. Yeah. That's a questionable assumption. Or, um, so you want to like slow down and say to yourself, mm, let's check the facts here. Like let's, let's really confront what, what's really true. Well, and I, I'm not sure if this is the right category, but it reminds me of that. Like, well, I went off my eating plan or my eating discipline or whatever you're doing. I went off of my plan. Therefore, I'm going to eat everything in the house that isn't nailed to something. Right, right. That's the abstinence violation effect. And that's a question. It's absolutely a questionable assumption. It's like, well, since I've screwed up a little bit, I might as well screw up a lot because it's the same difference. No, 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 no. Like, you know, one cupcake is not that big a deal. Eating seven cupcakes over the course of the day is not so great. Or like if you're like, well, now I need to start at the first of the month. Yeah, that's a it's a questionable assumption that you've blown it. And so therefore you can't, you know, you're, you're sort of released from the expectation of sticking to that habit. Well, if time will bear out, let's get two more out there. Let's talk about abstinence versus moderation, just oh, yeah. through an example, and then convenience and inconvenience. So give me an example of abstinence strategy versus moderation strategy. So, so ab the strategy of abstaining works very well for some people and not at all for others. So abstainers like me are people where it's easy for us to have none, but once we start, we can't stop until we go all the way. So Guilty. it's like... I can have no cookies or I can have 10 cookies, but I can't have one cookie. Moderators, by contrast, get kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can never have something. They need to have it sometimes or a little bit. And sometimes if they know they can have it, they don't even want it. So these are the people who keep the bar of chocolate in their desk and then every day they have, or every other day they have one square of chocolate. 
that's a moderator. <laughs> and so if you're an abstainer, you might find it, it sounds harder, but it's actually, if you're an abstainer personality, it's easier to give things up altogether to say, I'm like, my sister gave up French fries. She couldn't manage to eat a few French fries. So it's easier for her to have no French fries. I mean, I gave up, you know, I basically gave up carbs and I love it because I'm just like, you know, it's easy for me to have none. But if I had it sometimes, like when I have a little bit of sugary stuff, then I just, I'm like, can I have more today, tomorrow, two, three, it's my birthday, all that stuff. So exhausting to have all that noise in your head. But if I just never have it, then I don't even think about it. I don't even miss it. Am I blowing the model here that I am largely an abstainer, but moderation works with me on some things? It's probably things that you that you that you don't care all that much about. Okay, like I can be a true. moderator with wine because I'm like I could drink half a glass of wine. I don't care about wine. But another friend of mine is like I have no wine or I have four glasses of wine. I can't have one glass of wine. He's he's astonished that I can have half a glass of wine. So we can all be moderate about things that are like mildly tempting. It's how do you deal with the things that are strongly tempting? This comes up a lot of times too with technology. Like some people like they can't. There's a video game they can't play it at all because if they play it if they play one minute they're gonna play four hours. Or my sister was saying like she had to delete Candy Crush because it was actually affecting her career how much time she was playing Candy Crush if you can't handle a little bit of something try having none of it it sounds harder but it's actually for a lot of people easier I get it because w what you said is you only have to say no once I mean I'll give you an example from my own life sweets like actual you know just super sugary desserts abstain but wine I can absolutely have a glass of wine no problem right. but it's right. so much easier for me just to be like no I don't I just don't eat that food group right. um, and then but what you're saying is and I cannot relate to these people and if you are listening I love you but I cannot relate to you who, who actually take a bar of chocolate yes. and they break off a piece and then they rewrap the chocolate or yes. ice cream. Right. Or eat like a third of a dish of ice cream. <laughs> like, I'm like, I, once I have it, I'm going to go all the way. And then um, I'm probably going to lean over and eat yes. and eat the moderators. <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, you know, moderation is really held up as this ideal, I think. And that people, so people feel like they should be able to be moderate or that it's like really rigid or, or not healthy to say no to yourself all the time. But I'm like, it's whatever, there's no right way or wrong way. If moderators try to abstain, they kind of go crazy. And if abstainers try to moderate, they, they don't succeed. They really have, it's too hard for them. For us, it's easier to have none. We have just burned through the hour, Gretchen. And I know I need to be respectful of your schedule because you're a scheduler. And I know I I'm, about, I'm about <laughs> to cut into something else. I know it. <laughs> and as an upholder, you're like, it's very important to you to stick to what we agreed to. Yes, absolutely. That is correct. So I will actually wrap with you. If you'll squeeze in two questions that I ask everybody. And Gretchen, I think you'll get a kick out of it least one of them because the first question is what habit would you like everyone listening to try on for just one week I think I would have to say getting enough sleep because I do feel like that's something where if you if you don't get enough sleep just about everything in your life is going to be more difficult and if you just get enough sleep most adults need at least seven hours of sleep it goes a long way you get that energy and that focus that makes it a lot easier to do everything else you want to expect yourself to do all right, fantastic. And what's one resource that you're currently loving that you want to share with everybody else? And, and it can be anything. Well, I have to say of everything that changed my habits, I, I was most deeply affected and most positively affected when I read Gary Tobbs's book, 
called Why We Get Fat. Um, I read it on va vacation about three and a half years ago. I changed all my eating habits overnight um, and I'm much, much happier with the way that I eat now. And it's a fascinating book full of, full of really interesting and often counterintuitive information that's being increasingly borne out by those, all the studies in nutrition that are coming out now. So um, I really recommend Why We Get Fat. It's, it's, it's a really readable book too. It's really entertaining and accessible and full of really powerful ideas. All right. Well, then in addition to the links to your books, Gretchen, that people can find at onairwithella.com in the show notes, we will put a link also to Taub's book. Oh, great. Great, great, great. Gretchen, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like we could have talked all day. I would like to. Thanks so much. I love talking to you. I hope our paths cross in person soon. Me too, Gretchen. Take good care. Hey guys, don't go yet. It's still me. I just came back on the line on my own. I had to let Gretchen go because, you know, she's a scheduler. She's busy. And I just wanted to share a couple of things with you before we conclude this episode. As you may have deduced from this interview, Gretchen's work and this book have made a very large impact on me. It's actually really helping me crack some nuts that I have not been able to crack in my own life. So I am really, really inspired and I want to involve you in this journey with me. So you don't have to buy the book to participate in this journey with me. I just want to start having more conversations about forming the right habits and breaking the ones that we don't like. I think that that is just just such a hurdle for all of us in everything having to do with fitness and nutrition and mindset. And I mean, it all begins with what we do every day, right? The little decisions that we make every day and the activities that repeat every day actually end up to become our whole lives. I think this issue is so important that I don't want the dialogue to stop here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to do another episode where we talk just very specifically about habits that we are trying to break and habits that we are trying to create. So I want to hear from you. I want you to connect with me either email or on social media and you know where to find me. Onairwithella.com is kind of the hub and then you can find me on all social media under On Air with Ella. of course. It's easy. And here's what I want to hear. I want to hear one habit that you are trying to break or one habit that you would like to create. You can, of course, do one of each if you want, but I want to share them with you and with each other and with me, and I want to talk about it, and I want to share strategies that are working or might work or might not work. So let me hear from you, and we'll just start here. We'll start with the problem, and then we'll get to the solution. What one habit are you trying to break, and what's one habit that you are trying to create? either or both. All right, guys, I can't wait to have this dialogue with you. We'll start there. We'll see where we go with this. I think if we start talking about some of the habits that we're trying to break and some of the habits that we're trying to create, I think we can, and I think we can do it together. So let me hear from you. And until then, take care. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. If you like the show, here are two ways you can pay it forward. Tell a friend, help spread the word, and leave a review in iTunes or Stitcher, whichever one you use. That helps the show enormously get traction, and our goal is to spread the word. So if this show spoke to you in any way or it made you think of somebody who could get something out of it, share this with them. 
And if you want to send me feedback, you can do that directly. Here's how this works. Go to onairwithella.com, find the page that's called Connect, and send me an email. You can tell me anything you want to hear about, ways you think we can improve the show, or just what's on your mind. So I want to hear from you. If you have constructive feedback, tell me directly. If you love the show, share it with somebody and tell iTunes and or Stitcher. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply...